0: to the Natacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 196th episode of the Natacast, titled Divine Intervention, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Samwell 3, in which Sam and Gilly get caught by some bad zombies, only to be rescued by a good zombie. Confused? Well, so are they.
1: The only thing that can stop a bad guy with a zombie is apparently a good guy with a zombie.
0: <laughs> a good guy with a zombie. I'm like, you know, someone's got, like, instead of two guns over their shoulder, they just pull out two zombies. They got racked and just start firing <laughs> them off. I love this movie. Someone, someone pay us to write it. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled on all published books. The five novels, the three don't connect novellas histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. And I just want to say up top, our next episode will not be Arya 9, which is the next chapter in the Storm of Swords. We're going to do John 6 next because we're going to do the Red Wedding chapters together in a, in a cluster of a few episodes uh, in June. So we're going to be doing Aria 9 and 10 together after John 6, because Aria 10 is a real short chapter. Then we're going to do Catalan 6 on its own. And then we're going to have our big 200th episode spectacular for Catalan 7 and Aria 11 taken together, the Red Wedding itself. So that's what's coming down the line. So don't be surprised next week when we, next episode when we do John 6 instead. You didn't skip, skip an episode. That's just the structure for us over the next couple months. So our question this episode comes from our patron the Lonely Knight, who asks, "Do you think Sam gets a similar ending to his namesake in *Lord of the Rings*?" And that is a great question. For those of you who don't know, spoilers for the the end of *The Lord of the Rings*: uh, After Frodo uh, goes over the horizon to heaven. Uh, Sam goes back home to the Shire and it's it's a beautiful little ending where he sits at home with his, his wife and his children and says, well, I'm back. And it's a wonderful little perfect circle for him and kind of suggests that on some level Sam was the actual protagonist of Lord of the Rings because he's had this there and back again journey like Bilbo. So what do you think, Manny? Will Sam, our Sam, Sam uh Westerosi Sam, will he get some kind of ending for George to echo Tolkien like that?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that Return of the King refers to Sam returning home. That's all of what the third book is about—is king. getting back to his place. Absolutely. Um, but I-, I would say yes in general. Um, I don't think you name your fantasy character name Samwell uh, when there is Samwise Gamgee out You're there, especially when he's for the it. best friend of the main character or one of the like key core characters to the story. Yep. I think in general, I can see a lot of it playing out the same way. I do think Sam is a character who seems like he will survive through the end of the story. I think he will, or it is very likely that he puts down the events of this saga in some capacity, whether it's as a maester at the Citadel or just of his own accord. I think that part kind of tracks with me. So all of that kind of makes sense. Um, how intimate he is with kind of the end game of the story. Like, is he going to be there with Frodo when the ring is tossed into the fire? Um, who's to really say? Um, but you can say that he is the one that discovered that you have to stick the dragon glass into these white walkers. So like how to destroy the thing he has discovered or rediscovered himself. So he's already played a very important role in that war of the long night or for the dawn. Uh, so that's about as far as I'm willing to. Go with it. Um, I don't really know if there's anything else. I'd love for Sam to get you know married and have a bunch of kids with Gilly. Um, I'd also love a scouring of the Shire where he overthrows Randall Tarley who is uh, in Horn Hill or something like that. But I think that might just be a little too much for what's left in the side.
0: I like the idea though. That would be a great like penultimate chapter <laughs> to the end of the story. Yeah, great points all. Uh, the, the echo there was very strong, especially in relationship to John, as you say. Especially if John gets an ending resembling. The show. I mean, it's you know, it's Arya who technically goes west over the horizon at the end of the show, but Jon is also going over horizon to the north, kind of disappearing into a land of memory and legend, and so on in a not dissimilar way to Frodo. So that fits Sam. I I definitely agree he'll be one of the the characters around at the end, and he has that same kind of subtle under the surface hero's journey happening at the same time and place in in the context of Jon's, where as you say, it's him, not Jon Snow, who's actually the first one to kill another. I think maybe George might split up the exact echoes of how things go for Sam because the specific ending of coming home to the wife and kids always—I always felt and hoped that might be Davos who gets that mm-hmm. that specific mm-hmm. scene because he's—he's he's, we've you know talked a fair amount about his wife and his younger kids just always in the context of I'll get back to you eventually when I'm done with my story when I'm done doing things for Stannis and whoever else is around and needs me so I, I felt like that could, maybe that could be a, a little echo for him. Because uh, Davos has some Odysseus vibes, and that's part of definitely what Tolkien is evoking with his big return structure as the Odyssey. But yeah, I completely agree that definitely George knew what he was doing, naming this one Sam and having <laughs> him be the, you know, the relative shy, retiring, humble. Although it's it's an interesting uh, lens th- through which to kind of compare George and Tolkien because uh, Sam, while... You know he he has his own uh, mistakes and problems and terrible situations he gets he gets into. Is essentially happy with himself and his life in the Shire. And Sam, you know, had had the worst father in Westeros outside of Craster. So that's that's definitely kind of George's relationship to Tolkien. Is he takes he takes that character and he drops them into into a context that that Samwise Gamgee. But like if Sam's dad was. I don't know. Denethor doesn't even come close. Like if Sam's dad was Sauron, basically. No, if Sam's dad was the Balrog, that's instead of instead of the old Gaffer, whom whom we love from the books. So, but yeah, I think I think mostly similar ending. I think I think he's definitely in for it.
1: I think you hit on something there. I think at the very least, Sam Wise or Sam Wells ending will be in conversation with Sam Wise's, whether it's exactly the same or they hit the same beats. But I think there's a clear inspiration there. And just like John's, like I'll just take his show ending as canon for a minute. It's kind of like the inverse Aragorn as well. Instead of taking the throne and being the return of the king, I actually liked him not and kind of disappearing back into the north where aragorn came from in the first place um so i kind of like that you know that was kind of in conversation with both aragorn and frodo's ending without really being like beat for beat one or the other um and i can see something similar happening with sam as well
0: that's perfect now all now all we need is legolas and gimli i'll, <laughs> I'll have to think about who they are i guess that's just uh it's probably like torment torment could be gimli that's fine with me M-
1: maybe Padrick and brienne they just go on a tour <laughs> of westeros that looking that sites.
0: that works so, thank you to the Lonely Knight for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced, forced to answer here in the Notacast podcast. <laughs> you can head on over to patreon.com slash Notacast ASOIAF, where patrons get benefits, including early access, exclusive episodes, and the right to ask us questions that we answer here. So, check that out if you haven't already. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Samwell 3. So, let's jump into the synopsis. White Tree, Sam thought. Please let this be White Tree he remembered White Tree. White Tree was on the maps he'd drawn on their way north. If this village was White Tree, he knew where they were. Please, it has to be. He wanted that so badly that he forgot his feet for a little bit. He forgot the ache in his calves and his lower back and the stiff frozen fingers he could scarcely feel. He even forgot about Lord Mormont and Craster and the Whites and the others. White Tree, Sam prayed, to any god that might be listening. Well, we have ourselves another one of those bad news, good news situations here. Bad news, this isn't White Tree, as Sam himself admits when he inspects the local Weirwood. Good news, the gods are listening. Or at least some of them are anyway. The village is empty, the inhabitants having gone off to join Mance Raider with all the rest. Wherever it is, Sam is just grateful to have a roof over his head. Somehow he's in even worse shape than when he was fleeing the fist of the First Men. His boots are falling apart, his toes are frostbit, and while his feet finally calloused over, now he's got blisters under the calluses, because why should Sam ever catch a break? Still, he's got no choice but to walk. One of their horses died a few days out from Craster's Keep, and Gilly and the baby need the other one more than Sam does. Good old Sam. What a match, even if he literally can't start a fire to save his life. Gilly takes care of that, while Sam explores the village, finding exactly what he expected to find. Nothing. Not a scrap of food. He returns to the weirwood and falls to his knees. Old gods, hear my prayer. The seven were my father's gods, but I said my words to you when I joined the watch. Help us now. I fear we might be lost. We're hungry too, and so cold. I don't know what gods I believe in now, but... Please, if you're there, help us. Gilly has a little son. A plus prayer, Sam. Wouldn't change a word. And unlike most prayers, this one objectively works. Sam returns to the long hall to find Gilly feeding the baby by the fire. Sam is just as hungry, but they have eaten most of the food they took from Crasters. And Sam is as good at hunting and fishing as he is at starting fires. Which is to say, not good. Not good at all. Gilly asks how far it is to the wall. Sam says it's not as far as it was, which... Fuck yeah, I hope so. I feel like not going backwards is the bare minimum here. It's all Sam can tell her, though, because if this isn't White Tree, and it's not, then his maps aren't much good. The problem is that every time they come up against a lake or a river, they have to go out of their way to get around it, and in the process, he's lost all sense of where they are. It's not like they can miss the wall, what with it being a billion miles high and a trillion miles long and all that, but here's the thing. It really matters where along the wall they are. If they don't find Castle Black, they can't get through, because most of the other gates are closed. That sounds familiar. Who else was just talking about how to get through the wall? Eh, probably not important. Is the wall as big as Crestor used to say? Gilly asked. Bigger. Sam tried to sound cheerful. So big you can't even see the castles hidden behind it. But there, there. You'll see. The wall is all ice, but the castles are stone and wood. There are tall towers and deep vaults, and a huge long hall with a great fire burning in the hearth, day and night. It's so hot in there, Gilly, you'll hardly believe it. Could I stand by the fire? Me and the boy? Not for a long time, just till we're good and warm. Oh, poor Gilly, with that not for a long time. Just when I think I feel sorry for Sam the most of anyone, I get reminded that Gilly has had it even harder. Sam promises Gilly that she can not only get warm, but get fed, and even take in a show. Sam distracts himself from the hideous pain in his fingers by telling Gilly about how they used to have Darion sink to them at Castle Black. But he's been sent to the But he's been sent to Eastwatch, and they're stuck with Toad who sings about as well as you'd expect a guy nicknamed Toad to sing. Gilly asks if Sam sings. Sam blushes, though that might have more to do with catching a glimpse of Gilly's breasts as she switches the kid from one to the other. Anyway, Sam does sing, though his father didn't exactly encourage his pursuits in the arts. Gilly asks him to sing some southern song anyway, and Sam recalls one from childhood, the Song of the Seven. The father's face is stern and strong, he sits and judges right from wrong. He weighs our lives, the short and long, and loves the little children. The mother gives the gift of life and watches over every wife. Her gentle smile ends all strife and she loves her little children. The warrior stands before the foe, protecting us where we go. With sword and shield and spear and bow, he guards the little children. The crown is very wise and old and sees our fates as they unfold. She lifts her (laughs) lap of shining gold to lead the little children. The Smith he labours day and night to put the world of men to right with hammer plough and fire bright he builds for little children. <coughs> the maiden dances through the sky, she lives in every love for sigh, Her smiles teach the birds to fly, And give dreams to little children. The seven gods who made us all are listening if we should call, So close your eyes, you shall not fall, they see you little children. Just close your eyes, you shall not fall, they see you little children. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Encore, encore. <laughs> I'll never again. I'll never sing again. I say every time I sing. What a cute lullaby. Yeah, it's good to remember that there are some unambiguously nice moments in Westeros when, oh, by the way, Sam is flashing back to the last time he sang this song to his mother and baby brother. Only for his dad to come rushing in to say that Sam was <laughs> ruined by those songs and he doesn't want Sam near his newer, better son. Wow. Thanks, Randall. I was almost happy for a second there. Can't have that. Back in the present, the song did the trick. Gilly's baby is fast asleep. Unlike little Sam in the show, this baby doesn't have a name yet. Gilly says it's bad luck to name a child before they're two years old, as many of them don't make it that long. Wow, can we can we go back to singing, please? Speaking of which, Gilly thinks that Sam sang very well, but she's confused. She was counting along with the song, and Sam only mentioned six gods. Aren't there seven southern gods? Yeah, says Sam, but the stranger is the god of death, so no one sings of him. I guess the idea is that if you stay quiet, death won't find you? No such luck, Sam. Death is hard on your trail. They both eat a couple of bites of sausage, well-seasoned with garlic. Mmm, now we're speaking my language. Sam steps outside to piss, wondering what he's going to do about Gilly if they're lucky enough to make it back to Castle Black alive. She's offered to be his wife instead of Craster's, but Watchmen can't get hitched. It's in the rules. And besides, Sam thinks that a Tarly of Horn Hill could never marry a wildling. I don't know, Sam. Your father already disowned you and threatened to hunt you for sport. How much more could he hate you if you put a ring on it? By the time Sam gets back inside, Gilly is sleeping as hard as her baby. Sam feeds the fire and throws his cloak over all three of them to keep the warmth in. It reminds him of sharing a big bed with his sisters, before he got kicked out of it by his dad. Anyone else noticing a pattern here? (laughs) Randall thought it was making Sam soft, though Sam's got just enough confidence these days to realize that sleeping alone in a cold cell never made him any braver. Sam wonders what Randall would say if he knew his unwanted son killed another and got nicknamed Sam the Slayer. I mean, sure, but they were making fun of you, Sam. I do believe, sadly, that Randall would believe that everyone is making fun of you. I think that that story would ring true for Dad. Sam dreams about being back at Horn Hill with no sign of his father. Oh, I like this dream already. Hope it comes true. John is there, and Elsie Mormont, okay, so much for this coming true, and all their other Night's Watch friends, wearing Renly-style bright colors instead of their usual stannis style black is black-as-the-new-black attire. Sam feeds them roast and sweetcakes, everyone gets drunk on honey wine and starts singing and dancing. At the end of the night, Sam goes up to the room he once shared with his sisters, only to find Gilly waiting for him, lactating over all her furs. Well... We don't have time to unpack all of that because Sam (laughs) awakens from his sweet dream into a nightmare. The fire has gone out. The air is cold even by Beyond the Wall standards, and they're surrounded by shadows, one of which is moving. Melisandre, is that you? Nah, she's not this far north. Not yet. It's our old buddy Small Paul. Come to check in on the baby. What a sweet uncle. Oh, wait, he's dead. Much less sweet. Gilly sobs that the white has come for her baby. Sam tells Paul to go away. I wish that worked. Cold hands like turns up only to find the zombies leaving and apologizing for bothering everybody. Anyway, the afterlife has not been kind to small Paul. His face has gone pale, his beard is covered in hoarfrost, and there's a raven eating his cheek. At least Paul got that bird he always wanted? Sam pisses himself, but he keeps it together enough to tell Gilly to get the horse out of there. He grabs his obsidian dagger and starts luring Paul away from her. Paul? He meant to sound brave, but it came out in a squeak. Small Paul, do you know me? I'm Sam. Fat Sam. Sam the Scared. You saved me in the woods. You carried me when I couldn't walk another step. No one else could have done that, but you did. Sam backed away, knife in hand, sniveling. I'm such a coward. Don't hurt us, Paul. Please. Why would you want to hurt us? I don't think he wants anything, Sam, but technicalities, you're stressed, I get it. Paul backs Sam up against a wall, step by step, until the horse makes some noise. Stupid horse. Not going to feel sorry at all when you die horribly in a minute here. (laughs) Paul turns toward the noise, and Sam knows he'll never get a better chance. Sam charges forward, stabs Paul again and again, and the dagger shatters on Paul's iron mail. Whoops. So much for Sam the Slayer. Sam drops the hilt, but before he can reach for his other knife, Paul grabs him around the throat and starts to strangle him. Even when Sam finally gets his other knife, it bounces off the mail too. I don't know what to tell you, Sam. Try a grenade next time. Do you have those in Westeros? Sam can't breathe and starts to pass out. He lunges forward, using his weight to send Paul back a pace. But all Sam gets out of it is one free breath before Paul resumes the strangulating. Sam starts to taste blood. He looks around for his knife, but sees only the ashes of the fire. Which give him an idea. He drags himself and Paul along the floor, grabbing at a piece of fiery wood and shoving it down Paul's throat. The zombie's head bursts into flames, just in time to save Sam from joining him in death. Well, look at that! Turns out you do have grenades in Westeros. Sam steps outside, halfway through, bragging to Gilly about his latest legendary deed, when he notices that she is surrounded by the walking dead, his former brothers among them, currently dining al fresco on their horses' intestines. Sam made a whimpery sound. "It's not fair. Fair? The raven landed on his shoulder. Fair? Far? Fear? It flapped its wings and screamed along with Gilly. The whites were almost on her. He heard the dark red leaves of the weirwood rustling, whispering to one another in a tongue he did not know. The starlight itself seemed to stir, and all around them the trees groaned and creaked. Sam Tarley turned the color of curdled milk, and his eyes went wide as plates. Ravens? They were in the weirwood, hundreds of them. Thousands, perched on the bone-white branches, peering between the leaves. He saw their beaks open as they screamed, saw them spread their black wings. Shrieking, flapping, they descended on the whites in angry clouds. They swarmed around Chet's face and pecked at his blue eyes. They covered the sister men like flies. They plucked gobbets from inside Hake's shattered head. There were so many that when Sam looked up, he could not see the moon. "'Go!' said the bird on his shoulder. "'Go, go, go!' Sam ran, puffs of frost exploding from his mouth. All around him the whites flailed at the black wings and sharp beaks that assailed them, falling in an eerie silence with never a grunt nor cry. But the ravens ignored Sam. He took Gilly by the hand and pulled her away from the weirwood. We have to go. But where? Gilly hurried after him, holding her baby. They killed our horse. How will we- Brother! The shout cut through the night, through the shrieks of a thousand ravens. Beneath the trees, a man huffled head to heels, a man muffled head to heels in mottled blacks and grays, sat astride an elk. Here, the rider called. A hood shadowed his face. He's wearing blacks, Sam urged Gilly toward him. The elk was huge, a great elk, ten feet tall at the shoulder, with a rack of antlers near as wide. The The creature sank to his knees to let them mount. Here, the rider said, reaching down with a gloved hand to pull Gilly up behind him. Then it was Sam's turn. My thanks, he puffed. Only when he grasped the offered hand did he realize that the writer wore no glove. His hand was black and cold, with fingers hard as stone. And that is A Storm of Swords, a Samwell 3. What did you think of this one, sir? Look,
1: it's another Sam chapter beyond the wall, so I was ready for horrors beyond comprehension <laughs> based on how the first couple chapters went. But coming back to it now, Sam is haunted by his memories of his father as much as he's hunted by the thralls of the others. It's a reflective and spiritual chapter, and then, yeah, horrors beyond comprehension show up. What about you,
0: brother? Brother, I would love to hear the cold hands say "Amen, brother." I would love, I would love to hear the cold hands podcast, the cold cast. I would, I would subscribe to cold hands Patreon in a heartbeat. Now, that might be offensive. I don't think he has a heartbeat, but anyway. <laughs> Something I love about Sam's chapters in this book is how the scope keeps shrinking down as we go. We started with that, that widescreen horror show up by the fist, the White Walkers themselves pursuing the surviving Watchmen. Then we got to Craster's Keep, where those surviving Watchmen turned on each other as well as their hosts, so it was still big, action important, just on a more kind of human-mortal scale. Now George has stripped everything away, so it's just Sam, Gilly, and the Nameless Baby wandering through the empty wilderness. Even when the eldritch apocalypse does show back up, no White Walkers themselves this time, just a handful of zombies, few enough, few enough for some birds to deal with. So while Sam 3 is not quite as rich or expansive as his last couple chapters, that is a deliberate choice on George's part, and an appropriate one. It's an elemental chapter, like a hangover from the previous two, in which all the exhaustion and fear grinds the characters down to their essences. It's the perfect end to Sam's nightmarish journey beyond the wall. You really couldn't break it down any smaller than this. And so from here, his POV opens back up again to integrate the human society that, in this chapter, seems to have vanished from the face of the earth.
1: Like Emmett just said, this chapter is deliberately shorter than the ones we've covered both with Sam and the ones we've most recently covered on this podcast— I think that's because George wants to keep up a steady pace as we march towards the Twins and the Red Weddings. We don't want to dally too far from the Riverlands in this stretch of the material, or for too long. But at the same time, the chapter has a lot of overlap with those Riverlands-set chapters surrounding it, giving it emotional and aesthetic coherence even if Sam's plot thread is way off to the North. Sam, just like Jamie, Kat, and Arya before him, is revisiting a place he's been, or at least he thinks he's been before, White Tree. Just like Kat remembering the Whispering Woods and Hags, Mire and Old Stones, like Aria passing through Highheart again, and Jamie through villages he stayed at 18 years ago. It's a trip through personal histories, almost an appraisal of all that's come before, so that we'll be ready for everything that comes after the Red and Purple Weddings. Sam's trip through Memory, memory Lane this chapter will lead him back to Randall Tarley, who we'll talk about a bit later on. But, in spite of the trip down Memory Lane, Memory itself is failing Samwell. The cold is so biting, the trek so treacherous, that memories of the Fist, of Elsie Mormont, of Craster have all faded away. Like in Craster's Keep, where the very basic needs of food and warmth were not met, nothing else really mattered beyond that. And this too has some overlap with the previous chapters, with Arya forgetting the faces of the sea listers on her kill list, or the years washing away the face of Tristopher IV and Catelyn V of the Forgotten House Mud. Remembering and forgetting go together like ice and fire. Speaking of forgetting, Sam can't remember if this werewood is the same face as the one he saw at White Tree. Also, like we talked about a few episodes ago, the old gods are ascendant in this stretch of the story, with werewood stumps and high hearts driving action elsewhere. With the whites and crows and cold hands coming into play by chapter's end, George plants a werewood right in the vanguard of this chapter to let the reader know who has power here. Shelter gives Sam a chance to rest his feet, as he complains how his blisters have blisters at this point. Sam on foot ties us back to Samuel. 1. He isn't quite sobbing with every step, but this too has been a long, arduous march. A march where if you stop for even a single moment, you could die in some horrible way. Sam's tired, and we really feel that weight during this chapter. To say nothing of Gilly having to do this immediately after childbirth while also being the more canny survivalist of the two. Sam prays to the heart tree, convinced now that this isn't the village he knew. It's a Hail Mary of sorts, of desperation, whatever it takes to protect Gilly and most of all her son. Sam still conceives of the old gods as John's gods, despite admitting he swore himself to them back in a Game of Thrones. Again, doesn't take too much to draw a line between this and Colhann's arrival at the end of this chapter. It ends up working like a Greek chorus almost, a call and response from the gods themselves. Among Sam's prayer is an admission that he may be lost, especially if this isn't White Tree, which it isn't. (laughs) All he can be sure of is that they are going south and that the wall cannot be missed once they are closed. Good reasons to have hope. Yes, there is a question of where exactly along the wall they will be, which Sam himself wonders aloud, which hints at the later confrontation with Bran at the Night Fork.
0: That's a great job, I think, putting it into context with the chapters around it, because George's focus is clearly on the Riverlands at this point, but you do need to get this chapter done, because it has to come a certain amount before the last Bran chapter, where these characters show up again, and you have to get that chapter out of the way in time enough for Sam to get back to the wall where his story ends at the end of the book. But I think you, you point out so many great ways that George still doesn't make this seem like too much a break in the pattern with uh, the chapters around it. Uh, within Sam's own story, George pulls off an interesting subversion of his own story structure here. Like we've said before, Sam's journey south in this book is basically a retreat back through the same places the Watch visited on their way north. John's chapters in the last book started at Castle Black, then went through the village of Whitetree. Craster's Keep, and The Fist of the First Men, before he split off with Corrin Halfhand's crew, and we didn't check with Sam or Elsie Mormont or any of those people again for the rest of the book. Sam's chapters in this book start at The Fist, then move on to Craster's Keep, and they end at Castle Black. So, logically, this is the White Tree chapter, right? Sam certainly hopes so. He starts the chapter begging for this to be White Tree, begging for the pattern to hold, please, George, please let this be White Tree, But it's not, as he gradually, painfully admits to himself. The weirwood tree here is smaller, and it weeps blood. A reminder of the life and death stakes of Sam's navigation, and a hint that supernatural forces are on their way, both the good and bad kind. So George is breaking the pattern, in a way that throws the reader off as well as Sam. Suddenly, we don't know where we are, which really puts us in Sam's shoes. Or what's left of his shoes, anyway. (laughs) He wants it to be White Tree so badly that he briefly forgets everything else, which as you know from reading his first chapters, there's a lot to forget there. All the, the massacre and the mutiny and his, his frostbitten feet, all of his suffering inside and out, he, he manages to put it out of his mind because if this is White Tree, his maps still have value and he'll be able to get them to Castle Black where they can ease all that suffering. But if it's not, if the map is not the land, then their suffering has only just begun. This sets up the big obstacle for this storyline. Finding the wall is no problem because, well, it's the wall. Even a blind man would just (laughs) run smack into it eventually. But the bitter irony is that the powerful defenses of the wall, used against first the others and then the wildlings, are now being used against Sam, despite being a watchman himself. It doesn't matter if they find the wall, because they need an open gate, and the only open gate for hundreds of miles is at Castle Black. Or so it seems. And yeah, George does some sneaky work here. Cold hands, sudden arrival at the end of the chapter is, first and foremost, a solution to the problem of the zombies. But he also turns out to be a solution to the problem of getting through the wall, because he knows a gate that has long been forgotten. At the beginning of the chapter, though, Sam has forgotten all about the White Walkers and their zombie army. Something he couldn't help but remember in his first chapter, when he kept flashing back to the horror show on the Fist of the First Men. Then came the Craster's Keep chapter, in which the threat to Sam came not from magical ice demons, but from his fellow man, angry and starving. Now Sam is the one starving, and shivering out here in the cold. That's what might kill him now. Hunger, thirst, and exposure. The enemies who were here long before the White Walkers, and will be with us long after the White Walkers are gone for good. When Davos was stuck on his little rock after the Battle of Blackwater, he thought of hunger, thirst, and exposure as his friends because sooner or later, one of them would release him from his suffering. What changed his mind, what made him want to live and reach out to that boat that was passing by, was the memory of Stannis and his family, the duty he owed to all of them. And the reason Sam can't just lay down and die, like he almost did in his first chapter, is that now he has Gilly and the baby with him. He was entrusted with them at the end of his second chapter. And he honestly, I think, cares more about them than he does himself. You see that just with the horses. I gotta keep walking, I gotta let them have the horse. When you're all alone in the world, it can be difficult to think of reasons to keep going. All that exists is your own pain, and it will die with you. What forces us to live, I think, is other people. The bonds we make with them, and the responsibilities conferred upon us by those bonds. That's what happened with Jamie when he lost his hand. He forced himself to stay alive so he could make it back to his family. And that's what Arya is missing after the Red Wedding, which is why she joins a death cult that preaches annihilation of the self. <laughs> Man does not live on bread alone. We need something to live for. And right now, Sam is living for Gillian the baby. That's the essence of his prayer to the heart tree. It's not about him, what he wants and believes and fears, because as he says, he has no idea if he actually believes in the old gods or any gods at all. What gods would abandon them to the others, after all? What gods would put us at the mercy of men like Craster or like the men who killed him? What the prayer is about, as Sam says, is that Gilly has a little son. He can't find anything else to say, because what else is there to say? If there's any mercy left in this world, let it be bestowed on the children. That's what Ned believed, and he wasn't wrong, despite royally fucking up the execution. And I do mean royally.
1: (laughs) Memories and hopes of returning to Castle Black hopes to add some cheer, or that's at least Sam's thinking. He promises Gilly a place by the fire, and warm food, even songs, the last coming with a mention of Darian, who will factor heavily into Sam's A Feast for Crow storyline.
0: And see, this is what Sam is good at. His POV is dominated by his self-loathing. He has internalized his father's hatred of him at a level he doesn't seem to be fully aware of. Look at how he describes his dismal failure to hunt, like it's his fault that the winter wasteland is empty. He's constantly describing himself as clumsy, awkward, hopeless. Look at all the adjectives in this chapter. They're all from Randall. He's always seeing himself through his father's eyes. Now, it is objectively true that Sam is not what you'd call a competent outdoorsman. I both chuckle and wince at the bit where he cuts himself just trying to start a fire because that would absolutely be me. But, I mean, Sam is a steward, not a ranger. As he thinks, Elsie Mormont brought a bunch of other men to, to, you know, do the hunting and the fishing and the fire starting. It's not Sam's fault that all those guys are now dead or worse. He was never supposed to be in this situation. He was brought along to take care of the birds, which no one else could do. Of course, he fucked that up too. My point isn't (laughs) that Sam is secretly good at survivalism. He's not. My point is that being this down on yourself doesn't help your performance. It actually hurts it. You can see that in in real-world education. I'm an academic librarian, and I work with students a lot, and the stress and anxiety they feel about failure is, ironically, the number one obstacle to their success. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, where if you focus so much on how much you're going to mess up, you're going to mess up. Sam gets stuck in these painfully relatable shame spirals, where he's not contributing because he's busy thinking about how much he sucks at contributing. Eventually, and this is from my own experience, you just have to get over yourself and try your best. If Sam can't hunt, if he can't start a fire, well, what can he do? He can inspire them all to keep going, using his words to paint a picture for Gilly of the warmth waiting for them at Castle Black. He can sing the baby to sleep. And that matters. You need morale in a situation like this, and Gilly does need help taking care of the kid. This is the gentle, nurturing side of Sam that John quickly recognized in him. And it's no coincidence that this is the side of Sam that his father not only neglected, but actively despised.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it'll shock no one to hear that Randall Tarley was having none of Sam singing and dancing growing uh-huh. up. Randall is basically the living embodiment of patriarchal masculinity in Westeros. A violent, unforgiving, martial man with a legendary blade. And he enforced gender roles onto Sam. If you're going to dance around, can you at least try to kill something while you do it? <laughs> The enforcement of gender on Sam was first for his own sake, so that Sam could fulfill the role of son and heir to Hornhill and Heartsbane. When it was clear that Sam was something else, Randall turned to segregation tactics to prevent Sam from quote-unquote contaminating his baby brother Dickon. And because this sort of violent patriarchal system must fulfill its quota of misogyny, Randall blames his wife for Sam as much as Sam himself. Instead of seeing his son for what he is, instead of possibly reconfiguring his steadfast views to better approximate reality, he insta- <laughs> instead double-downs on his prejudices. The first verse of the Song of the Seven invokes the father, and since it's something Sam has heard all through his life, I wonder if it plays into his fucked-up psychology around Randall Tarley. The father judges right from wrong with his stern face, but the verse concedes that he still loves his children. It's a hope, perhaps, that Sam clung to through much of his youth, that his father was just trying to tough love him into shape, into a man. I call this chapter a spiritual one, as Sam invokes both the old gods and the new at various points in this chapter, earlier at the heart tree and now here with the song. There's overlap in these prayers too. Sam grew up with the seven, and each stanza ends with little children, just like his plea to the heart tree ending with Gilly's little child. Gilly's smart enough to realize Sam only sings of six gods, not seven. We don't sing about the stranger. We do not mention the face of death. In this chapter, though, to paraphrase Maggie the Frog, it's because the stranger is in that hut with you, as the shadows on the wall will reveal themselves to be soon enough. Later, when Sam is wrestling small Paul, he reprises the song in his head in a way, thinking of the mother he loved and the father he failed. And I'm sorry I got to mention this. Am I the only one who sees a comparison between the cold, hard, black sausages Sam is eating and cold hands fingers? Or have I completely lost my mind? I love
0: it. He should try, try gnawing on them. That's what they should have done with Bran Beyond the Wall once they were getting hungry. Just just go gnaw on cold hands for a bit. He won't feel it. They should play bitey. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We do call the big one bitey here on the Nauticast. You just got to sprinkle cold hands with a little garlic, a little Italian seasoning. He'll, he'll cook right up.
1: George makes evident that both Sam and Gilly are mentally trapped in the institutions they were raised in. Gilly says she can be Sam's wife, because in the horrid conditions at Craster's Keep, that's the only role she could ever know, the only relationship that exists between man and woman. And Sam's response to such a match? Well, I'm in the Night's Watch. And also, I'm a Tarly of Horn Hill. I can't marry a wildling. Both are prisoners of institutions they lived under, almost to the point they can't imagine a different way of things to be, which is understandable when that's all you've ever known. And not only is it all you've ever known, but it's also been an actively harmful, oppressive force in both Gilly and Sam's lives. I think a lot about Georgi Lukács' concept of reification, or Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer in The Dialectic of Enlightenment, both building on Marx's idea of commodity fetishization. It's not just that these systems, be it monarchy or patriarchy or capitalism, perpetuate themselves and sink their roots even deeper into society, but they also do that in our minds. Lukács said, Just as the capitalist system continuously produces and reproduces itself economically on higher levels, the structure of reification progressively sinks more deeply, more faithfully, and more definitively into the consciousness of man. It not only becomes the cage of, of our material conditions, but it cages our imagination, not being able to think beyond the consumer in your mind, or what have you. And if you are someone who believes in transformative justice, you need an imagination to think beyond the way things are to dream of a better future. This is actually one place I do want to give the props to the show. I generally do like what they did with Sam and Gilly. Sam specifically may be written a bit more quote-unquote modern on the show than he appears on page, but we do see what effect going beyond the wall, seeing horrors beyond comprehension, has on him. He puts up with a lot less bullshit afterwards, equivocating on his night watch vows, protecting Gilead Castle Black, stealing Heartspain from Horn Hill, and even suggesting elections in the finale, even if he's laughed out of the room for it. He killed the feudal system in his mind, because none of that matters in the face of zombie apocalypse or climate change, or even just keeping Gilly and her child safe. Sam has strange dreams that night, and in such close proximity to the giant weirwood in this village, I can't help but see similarities to Jamie's dream on the weirwood stump in his previous chapter, a dream wrapped up in the most intimate relationships of their respective lives. Sam sees a future that is not drab. Literally, all his friends are there and not in Night's Watch Black, and Gilly was waiting for him in his sister's bed, the one he slept in growing up, one of the few places he truly felt safe and himself.
0: That's great stuff about the kind of the, the ideological foundations of what's going on. I think you really teased out those layers well because even though this is a, a short and simple scene on the surface, it's a, it's a very revealing one. And this is yeah, this is my favorite part of the chapter. It, it sticks with me even more than the the crazy supernatural shit about to happen, even though that's that's so much my jam because it's it's because of how much it, it speaks to both Sam's character and George's perspective on Westeros. The Song of the Seven is intended for children, but it's, like you say, it's an ideological foundation wrapped up in a bedtime story, which they often are. It's a way of introducing children to the gods that make and rule us all without scaring them, or giving them reason to defy those gods. It's so telling that the Song leaves out the Stranger, in the same way that Sansa saw that only a few candles were lit for the Stranger in the Great Sept of Baelor prior to the Battle of Blackwater. Why do that? The Stranger is one of the seven. Even Gilly, who knows nothing about the Faith, realizes that, hey, wasn't one of those left out? It's not like the Stranger is evil. We don't hear stories about the Stranger gleefully torturing the souls of the dead in a lake of fire or anything like that. From what George tells us, the Stranger is your escort to the land of the dead. And Catelyn thinks that her Septon told her that their god is one with seven faces. Brienne tells Septon Meribald that her Septon told her the same thing. Mirabold says, yes, that's technically true. But the ontological mystery of the seven as one is too much for most people to really comprehend. It's it's too abstract. You can see the parallel to Catholicism's holy trinity with which George was raised, but there's also the influence, I think, of Hinduism, with multiple gods all drawing from Brahman, the world soul. Is the faith of the seven monotheistic or polytheistic? Seems like both, depending on how you think about it, who you talk to. Most polytheistic religions, at least to my limited knowledge, don't consider death gods to be evil. Death is part of life, after all, and immortality is a trap for the unwary. Just look at the zombies. And there's an association to be made here between the stranger and the others. And we've both talked about that, that the stranger, kind of, that the death god is brought to the fore in this chapter by the arrival of the zombies. But really, the others, maybe the others aren't death gods, because they bring back the dead. They kind of end death in the worst way possible. The Song of the Seven makes its own title a lie, only singing about six gods. Because if you start bringing up the death god, you might scare your kids away from believing in the faith. Instead, you spin a story about how the gods exist to protect children. That's what they all have in common. But how would you write a verse for the stranger? The stranger doesn't have a gender. They come to return you to send her the face of death, the real world ender. They'll get you, little children. <laughs> you can't end the song that way. If the seven gods are really all the faces of one, then the father is the mother, is the warrior, is the stranger. It's neither male nor female because it, because it collapses all the archetypes together, revealing the unity of nature. And maybe one of the reasons Westerosi parents don't sing about the stranger is that it breaks down the gender binary, which is one of the primary sources of the patriarchal authority Randall Tarley wields. And that's what's going on here. The real face of the stranger in this chapter is not the unknowable other, it's Randall Tarley, Sam's own father. You can see that just in how the scene is structured. Sam sings about the other six faces of God, and then immediately flashes back to the last time he sang it. He was with his mother, singing to his baby brother, this perfect little, little image of domestic contentment, immediately shattered by dad. So he's the last verse. Randall finishes the song. He's the stranger, the face of death for Sam, rather than the father, yeah, a font of righteous judgment and strength, as he no doubt thinks of himself. The gods will catch you if you fall, the song says. But they won't. Think back to Bran's fever dream. Bloodraven, avatar of the old gods, is 100% prepared to let Bran fall. Let him die in his sleep if all the bones Bran sees are any indication. Bran is the one who catches himself. That's what lets him fly. Davos thinks he sees the mother on his, his little rock in Blackwater Bay, but like I said when we covered that chapter, I don't think that was an actual divine vision. It was his own guilt talking, made tangible by deprivation. It was Davos talking to himself. And it was Davos who had to choose, first to try and kill Melisandre, and then, to di- and then to take a different path when that failed. Men make gods, not the other way around. And this chapter shows us the gap between the songs we sing and the world we make. And we see that that effect on Sam with, yeah, that, that, that telling dream he has, where he's, he's back in his, his home, but everything is how he wanted it to be. Everyone is able to sing and laugh and be happy and wear bright colors because dad's not there. And then he imagines Gilly. It's, it's a hell of a scene. He enters Gilly in the bed. He used to share with his sisters, and she's got, and she's uh, leaking breast milk. So she's both a maternal figure and a sexual figure and a sister figure all at the same time. And the reason all of this is conflated for Sam is because of Randall, because Randall kind of brutally cut short this part of his life. And so he's, Sam is kind of stunted with his, his sexual desire for Gilly, all wrapped up in the family he lost and left behind. And this is the ultimate failure of the faith of the seven. Not in terms of theology or eschatology. It's a political, institutional failure to live up to its own promises. That's why maybe this prayer isn't answered. That's why George emphasizes that Sam's earlier prayer to the old gods is answered. They're the ones with power up here.
1: Just like Jamie from his Weirwood slumber, Sam wakes up suddenly and forcefully, cold and dread, he thinks. The shadows move in the corner, which has my mind immediately thinking of Melisandra, but this isn't fire. This is ice magic, a deathly cold that's come for Gilly's babe. We talked about Sam being haunted and hunted by his past, and that takes literal shape in the form of Small Paul. In my best Bob Odenkirk, better Small Paul. <laughs> I love the description of Paul's face as white as milk, playing on duality just like we've talked about with fire meaning life or death. Milk can be a sign of fertility, of life, like Gilly nursing her child in that dream Sam just had. But here it is the face of death, the opposite of life-bringer, a symbol of decay, made more harrowing by the raven tearing apart Paul's cheek.
0: Yeah, that's a great call. Sam was just thinking that Gilly smelled like milk even before he had that dream, and here's a zombie with a face like milk. But more like sour milk, or spoiled (laughs) cheese, or rotten eggs. Like you say, it's a sign of decay. And that ties into what Gilly says. The zombie has come for the baby. Now, who knows if that's literally true? Like, every other zombie in this pack of former watchmen went for the horse first. (laughs) But on a deeper level, I, I think Gilly's right. The White Walkers are fairy creatures. They're jealous of life. So, like most fairies, they steal human babies and turn them inhuman. It's especially brutal because, as Sam says, Small Paul saved Sam's life and heroically died fighting one of the White Walkers. In a way, George is combining both of Sam's previous chapters in the book here. In his first chapter, he was threatened by the White Walkers, by the undead. In his second chapter, he was threatened by his fellow man. In this chapter, it's both at the same time, undead versions of his brothers, the worst of both worlds. It's one thing to be killed by an eldritch abomination. It's another thing entirely to be killed by someone you recognize, someone you counted on for protection. And that's what ties this right back to Randall Tarley. Sam should have been able to count on his father for protection. Instead, his father brutalized him, humiliated him, and finally threatened to hunt him down and kill him. Why would you want to hurt us, Sam asks Paul, and I feel like that's the question he never dared ask out loud to his father.
1: Oh, that's good. I love that. Sam tries to wield Paul's humanity against him, hoping some memory of the watch or their flight from the fist would arrest him. Which, maybe not as dumb as it sounds, we know the white sent to kill Elsie Mormont had some mind of where they were going. Sam was praying deep down somewhere there might be something to plead to, someone who might listen. Doesn't make any difference here in this chapter, but it's one thing we can watch in The Winds of Spring as if any consciousness exists in any of the other's thralls.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. But Beric held on to some of his personality, albeit less and less each time when he came back. My guess is that if Small Paul still exists on some level, he's trapped inside his own mind, his body just reduced to a puppet, like the people stuck in the sunken place and Get Out. The White Walkers can probably harvest his mind for information. Like you said, they did that with the whites they sent back to Castle Black, but that's it. And Thoros brought Beric back accidentally. The others do it on purpose, and they seem to have turned it into a science (laughs) over the millennia. They've gotten real good at it.
1: Yeah, they've applied some Fordism to that. They got an assembly <laughs> line of these things. spit now, <laughs> that's out. what
0: waits in the heart of always winter is just an endless factory line. <laughs> it would make sense.
1: The dragon glass is about as effective as Sam's words. They may do the trick on White Walkers, but Whites are just sponges for them. To balance out my earlier praise for the Game of Thrones show, they played a little fast and loose with the obsidian stuff in the end game, which I didn't really like. Steel and fire will do for the Whites. Though Sam improvises in their absence, he's able to use his weight and size to get leverage on Paul. Sam gets criticized for his size, but he uses it to his advantage here. But his weight only collapses them onto each other, and their struggle continues. Sam eventually gets the upper hand by grabbing a burning ember from the fire and smashing it into Paul's mouth. I picture this a lot like the end of The Rock by Michael Bay, where Nick Cage's Stanley Goodspeed is wrestling Captain Fry and sticks a poison pearl of VX gas into Fry's mouth to defeat him. More saliently, it reminds me of how John took out the Whites and chick in the Lord Commander's ch- bedchamber, throwing a lantern grabbed by his bare hand and into the zombie.
0: Who would Nick Cage play in Thrones? If, you had, if you're oh, going to draft God. him. I know that's a big question. Who, is, does anyone have <laughs> Does anyone have the personality sufficient?
1: Um, I think it would be really fun to see him play Viserys, as in Daenerys' brother Viserys. Oh, um, yeah. Nothing against Harry Lloyd, but I just think with Nicolas Cage, you always want a big role. And I feel like Viserys was kind of as big as it got, at least in that first that's season. That's a meaty
0: scenery chewer. I love that. That's perfect. And yeah, some, my only real criticism of this chapter is I think this fight scene goes on a little long. Like there's a whole bit where <laughs> Sam is getting strangled and then he gets away for like a second and then Paul is strangling him again. It's Maybe George felt like the chapter was too short, so he threw some padding in there. And I think as a result, it's not quite as, as urgent or exciting as John's similar showdown with the White attacking Elsie Mormont back in book one that you mentioned. That scene moved fast. Like you didn't know what was happening and then suddenly it was, it was all going down. Regardless, there is still a lot to love here. Like, it's so perfect that Sam's dagger, his, his beautiful dragonglass dagger, just shatters on Paul's armor. Even as George gave us earlier in the book, this great, iconic fantasy hero image of Sam melting the White Walker like it was the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, he's been busy undercutting that image ever since. First of all, most of the other Watchmen didn't believe it, and then things went south at Craster's Keep, and Sam couldn't do a damn thing about it. And here, Sam thinks he can just play the same trick again, only to be fooled by the most mundane obstacle. Smallpaw's still wearing his chainmail. And while the dragonglass can play the Lightbringer role against exposed white walker flesh, it shatters to pieces against ordinary armor, because it's, it's so thin and brittle. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't win the day alone. You still have to think critically about how you use your weapons, which Sam does here by shoving the fiery coal into Paul's mouth. And I, I love the imagery here—the the frost melting from Paul's face as he burns from within, or his blue eyes described like stars, which reminds me of it. How the the monster in it is described <laughs> with blue eyes like stars—it's great. Even if the action itself, the staging of it, isn't all that compelling, the way George describes it hooks me, and it's 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 very cinematic. It's one of those scenes you can just you can see it all play out in your head.
1: Sam has no time to celebrate, as other ghosts from his past, the Whites of Chet and Lark and others, encircle Gilly and tear apart their last horse. But I mentioned the gods are strong in this chapter, especially the old gods, but especially one of the gods of cinema, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh This chapter's big finish feels straight out of the birds. Ravens first fill the giant heart tree before descending on the white horde, giving Sam and Gilly a chance to flee. The raven squawk, bear, fear, far, go, all the while, hundreds, nay, thousands of them, they are, a thousand eyes and one. And I feel I have to give a shout out to, like, the three people who followed me from the Metal Gear Solid podcast here, but there's a very iconic scene in Metal Gear Solid 4 where Liquid Ocelot, voiced by uh, Patrick Zimmerman, calls to his brother Solid Snake, and he does a loud, BROTHER- and that's always how I hear Cold Hand's arrival in this chapter.
0: Beautiful. I, I, can, I can picture it now. And yeah, this is, this is how Sam's prayer to the old gods from earlier is answered. And it's the kind of thing that gets criticized as a deus ex machina. And I, I think that kind of criticism is, is overblown and usually pretty shallow. It's just nitpicking about plot holes without any attention paid to how it works in terms of the emotional impact on the reader, which is what matters. Like, a story isn't a logic contest between the author and the audience, and there are no hard and fast rules in storytelling, only general guidelines. Using this as an example, does it negate Sam's character arc by making him a passive recipient of fate? Well, not really, because he did choose to stand up against a zombified small ball in order to save Gilly and the baby. More to the point, sometimes people really are passive recipients of fate. As Sam whimpers, it's not fair. There is such a thing as luck, both good and bad. We see both here, and there's nothing inherently wrong with a plot point that isn't driven by character choices. What makes it work or not is the execution, and George executes this perfectly. First of all, he keeps distracting you with wild imagery, so you're not sitting there going, boo, this is cheap. You're going, whoa, what the hell is even happening? (laughs) First, the weirwood leaves are rustling. Okay, that could just be the wind, but then George writes that the starlight itself seemed to stir. One of those trippy images he's so good at, where nature itself seems to break loose. This is what it would look like when a god answers your prayers. And then suddenly, there are ravens. All the ravens, not just a couple of them, thousands, Sam says. You know, he's, he's a little stressed, he might be overstating the case, but still. Even though they're here to help, there's something spooky about how they appear out of nowhere, and just how many of them there are. Now Sam is the one who looks like curdled milk, George writes, just like a small Paul looked earlier because he's scared even as they run for it. Gilly points out that the Whites ate the horse, so there's no way out even with this sudden deliverance. And then we see the wildest image yet, a ranger on the back of a huge elk that sinks to its knees to let Sam and Gilly up. There's a great little bit I love in the next Bran chapter when Sam and Gilly try to describe Cold Hands to Bran and his companions, and they just go, His elk? His elk? Yeah, an elk. <laughs> We've gone from The Walking Dead to Princess Mononoke. And just when you've caught your breath, George hits you in the gut to end the chapter. Their rescuer's hands are pitch black. Not because he's wearing gloves as part of the familiar Night's Watch outfit. Again, black is the new black for them. (laughs) No, these are just his hands, cold as stone. This is Cold Hands, as Gilly calls him. And like Patchface, the goofy nickname doesn't cover up the cosmic horror at the core of the character. Cold Hands is some dead thing as Bran calls him in A Dance with Dragons. He's a zombie, just like the ones that almost killed Sam and Gilly. Sure, Coldhands just saved Sam and Gilly from those zombies, but this cliffhanger ending, I think, is really what prevents this from feeling cheap. Sure, they've been rescued, but by who? By what? And what's going to happen to them now? This is what divine intervention would probably feel like in practice. The world has changed around you. As always, Sam is just trying to keep up, and so too is the reader. So, that'll take us into foreshadowing and groundwork. We get this little bit in this chapter when Sam is talking about the wonders and pleasures that await them should they ever make it back to Castle Black. And he says they can hang out and listen to people sing. We can't listen to Darion sing, though. He's off at Eastwatch, but he had the best singing voice in the Watch. Sam tells us he only wishes Gilly could hear Darion sing. Well, as it turns out, they're all going to travel together in a feast for crows. And Gilly will hear Darion sing before he abandons them in Braavos, a crime for which Arya murders his ass.
1: Yeah, you know, throughout the story we learn that the songs are bullshit, but apparently the singers are a bunch of bullshit too. <laughs> even uh Mance's Able kind of plays into that in a w- different sort of and way. Man, and
0: Mance is like the nicest of the singers and even even <laughs> still he's constantly full of shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Dar- Darion is I would say he's the worst, but Marillion is pretty bad too. Marillion mm-hmm. tries to outright assault Sansa at one point. Although Marillion gets punished for it even worse than Darion, So, and 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 the blue bard gets it bad. Yeah, really Really tough. So far, only Thomas Sevens has made it out somewhat intact, and I'm I'm worried about what happens to poor Tom. We sh- we shall see. So going into theory and discussion, no surprise here. I think you can predict what we're going to be talking about uh, for this episode. This is the only time in A Storm of Swords we actually directly see Cold Hands. He pops up again in Bran chapters in A Dance with Dragons, but we thought we'd talk about it here since it's the burning question: Who the hell is Cold Hands?
1: All right. So I think there's a couple ways to approach this. I think the first one we have to say is Benjamin Stark is like the favorite possibility and was the favorite possibility until a what a transcript or a rough draft of a Dance with Dragons was found in like a Texas University library. Yeah, or it was like an that. editor's
0: a draft he sent to his editor that was found in the, mm-hmm. uh, the Cushing Library. I think it is where George keeps most of his papers at Texas A&M. Yeah. Yeah, so um
1: I will say I am totally okay with the show doing that like going with that route. It's a great economization of character. It kind of ties off the Benjamin Stark loop. I'm sure, you know, George has something else planned for the books, but I think that all worked in terms of story economization and adapting for television. That's all fine. Who I actually think Cold Hands is, I kinda think he might just be no one. (laughs) He might just be kind of a you know, a No One Night's Watch member or someone who is kind of minor, like part of Blood Raven's, perhaps escort guard. Sure. Uh, that
0: the the is, Raven's like, teeth, right? That they call his guard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there is a want. I think the answer I want to be true, even though I've kind of Come around on the case against it is the Night King himself, the Night King that ruled out of the Night Fort, not Darth Maul from uh, Game of Thrones, (laughs) the television show here. Um, But I did kind of like the idea of that he was a person that cavorted with the others and then was punished in some like unimaginable way. They like say his name has been completely stricken from the records. And another way to like tarnish your legacy is to have you kind of roving around as like an undead corpse for the rest of time. Um, and also there's obviously the connection to the night fort, which this cold hands character knows where the gate is that will let a uh, brand through. So I think all of those things kind of nicely uh, you know, tie up into each other. But I feel like I've read something that's pretty convincing that it's probably not the Night King. So ever since then, I've kind of settled on it's probably no one of real value. But what do you think, sir? Yeah,
0: I, I, I could definitely be persuaded by that. I think, you know, part of me, and this isn't, again, there are no hard and fast rules in storytelling, but... There's the you know there's there's the kind of rule that you don't wanna hit the audience with too many twists and surprises directly in a row, and mm-hmm. it's like we already we already have one big identity shock in this storyline, which is blood Raven as the three eyed crow like that already is a reveal. Who knows if, yeah. if there's something really important to be hinged on who Cold Hands is? Uh, the one clue we kinda have to work with, the one textual clue we have to work with, is that in a dance with dragons, when Cold Hands goes out of the cave to guard it from the the White Walkers and the Whites, and Bran is worried that they're gonna kill him, and Leaf says Leif, one of the children of the forest, says no, they they killed him long ago. And Leaf has been around for a while, as the children of the forest have been. So for her, you know, long ago is a pretty significant statement. So even that on its own would seem to remove Benjen, or even maybe even some of the more recent candidates I've heard, like Dunk uh, from 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 mm-hmm. the from the running. I do kind of wish it was Benjamin even though it's canonically not. Because yeah, George and that that uh, that draft he sent to his editor, she had written a teasing thing about cold hands. Like, is this Benjamin And he said no, like big capital no with a circle around it, just trying to head off that theory. Uh, it would it would make sense. Again, it's just it's economic. It's the reason the the, the show did it. You have Benjamin as this loose dangling thread who vanished in book one and season one. Here we are beyond the wall. Here's a guy wearing Nightswatch clothes who's looking after our heroes, Sam and Bran, people he's adjacent to. But really, it does fall apart Of like if he is Benjamin, there's no reason for him not to tell Bran that. Like mm-hmm. why would he not? what is he hiding it for? Just for the reader's sake, for this so the author can have a big reveal? That doesn't make a huge deal of sense. Uh, I do like the Night King idea because that ties very strongly into the Night Fort. Uh I think that makes sense that, you know, he would know about that but not be able to pass through and kind of have this this dark relationship to it. I think that works. I think it's also possible that he is uh just literally Blood Raven. That like Blood Raven is is puppeteering a corpse around. Because Blood Raven also was a night's Watch watchman. He could legitimately call someone brother. So maybe maybe it is just that. I think that's it's it's I think that would be funny if George kind of unintentionally created a mystery where he actually didn't intend for there to be one. But yeah, I think it's it doesn't have to be someone huge in the same way that like, I compared him to Patchface earlier. And I think it, you know, Patchface could be like a lost Valyrian or Targaryen dragon seed as people have theorized. I think that could be cool, but it's not necessary. In the same way that like, you know, I think R plus L equals J is not only true, but has to be explicitly revealed. I think that has to be something the characters actively wrestle with, and it's not just there as an Easter egg. Whereas someone like Cold Hands is tertiary enough and functional enough, then I don't I don't think it has to necessarily be a big reveal. So clearly what I'm saying is he's Ned. He's, he's, <laughs> he's Ned's dead body reanimated, everyone. That's, that's the theory.
1: Uh, The thing you got me thinking there was if it is just Bloodraven animating someone, I wonder if it's almost like a similar relationship between Bran and Hodor. Like this was like one of the first people he broke in as a person to warg into and then even after his, you know, he actually died, he was still useful in that capacity. Um, Maybe it doesn't end with like a Hodor like you know, falling into a pile and repeating his name like the show did. Maybe even after that moment, Bran still employs Hodor as a vessel in the same Way that Bloodraven. Oh, is, that would be brutal. With, like, hands. I
0: like that a lot. I like that a lot, and that ties into you know if Euron is in fact Bloodraven's dark protege, he has his own people. He likes he likes to mm-hmm. use and abuse like that, so that lines up. So I think that is going to uh, wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Samwell Three. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that and help people find us. If you haven't already, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. You can uh, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at Porkwenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu at Nuclear Bomb. You can find our coverage of
1: Secession and Lord of the Rings
0: over at My Brother, My Captain, My
1: Podcast.
0: So I took a month off of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings episodes for patrons, just because busy couple months for me, so uh, we'll be getting back to those towards the end of May with Lord of the Rings, books ch- Book 6, Chapter 4, The Field of Cormallen. that'll be out in late May for all of our $5 and above patrons, and then Manu will be joining me to kick off the original trilogy of Star Wars Ooh. in June, we're gonna be kicking off the opening openings, uh, sequence of the first movie with our boys, 3PO and R2, that's gonna be a great time. And then in *A Song of Ice and Fire*, like I said up top, we are skipping over Arya nine for now. We'll get back to it in conjunction with Arya ten in a couple episodes. So next time in Westeros, it will be *A Storm of Swords* John six, in which John finally makes it back to Castle Black to find basically nobody there. Oh, okay, Maester Aemon's there. That'll scare the wildlings.
1: Oh, it's not just that, but the people who are there tell John that everyone he knows and loved is dead. <laughs>
0: It's a fun chapter where they gradually escalate the bad news. And what's so funny is it comes right before the Red Wedding. So the real bad shit hasn't even <laughs> happened yet. John doesn't even oh, know what he's got. It's a time got. to be it's, Snow. It's, is it ever a good time to be Jon Snow, but it's an, un- no it's an unusually bad time to be Jon Snow. Poor sucker. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Jon 6.